Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Animal Academy podcast. I hope everybody's doing well and staying safe during these challenging days. I've appreciated being able to work from home and having my dogs at my feet. It has been a great comfort and has also been a huge stress reduction for me. I'm excited to be able to speak with our guest today, Janine Moga, who is a licensed clinical social worker with specialties in veterinary social work, stress, reduction, pet loss, and bereavement, and she's also a veterinary social worker. She's been an educator and consultant, and I look forward to hearing more about the work that she does using animal-assisted interventions today. Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Well, good morning, Janine. I'm so glad that you're joining me for the show. Thank you for having me, Allison. It's a pleasure. Well, it's been many years. You know, we were yes. just talking about you were one of my instructors at the University of Tennessee in their veterinary social work program. Yeah, and years ago. Yeah, I'm excited to see you again. That was probably six years ago. Yeah, probably. time flies. It does. T- yeah, it does fly. A little bit about your yourself and how you got started in the field. Long and winding path, actually, so I won't go from start to finish, but I have been working in the field since early in this particular uh, chunk of time, the century. So I started, I think, 2002 is when I began my training. I started working full time in, in the veterinary social work field, actually, in a veterinary hospital starting in 2004. And then spent a goodly a bit of time working specifically in veterinary medicine and veterinary hospitals doing an assortment of education and programming. And then I left academic veterinary medicine in 2018 to pursue private practice and a little bit of a shift in my practice focus. And so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. You've been involved in many aspects of veterinary social work then. I have. It's it's been a really full, almost 20 years now. It's been very full and I've really been able to engage a pretty wide breadth and depth of practice, which has been great. Do you, and this is probably not a very fair question, but is there one that you prefer over another or do you like them all differently? As far as areas of practice, I actually, I came to social work and veterinary social work from a very different sort of practice perspective. And so I I came from a different field entirely. And this was a mid-career shift for me. And so I think less about the categories of work than I do about what new opportunities do I have to really apply my interest in training in human-animal issues and relationships wherever I land. Right. So I've been able to land in lots of different places and spaces um, over the course of my career. And now I'm really trying to be intentional about bringing human animal issues to the forefront. Awesome. And, you know, that is the beauty of social work is that it allows you to move in so many different directions with the bottom line of helping people, helping animals, communities. 
Yes, absolutely. It is It is why I was drawn to shift careers and go into social work in the first place is that I knew wherever I worked, because there's such a diversity of opportunity for applying social work skills and knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, regardless of where I found myself working, that I would be able to really bring something to the table that was a unique perspective. So in other episodes, we've talked about veterinary social work, but there's so many different areas of specializations. It sounds like you focused on specific areas and then branched off from there. Is that correct? I started, again, working very specifically in a veterinary setting. So working in in an academic medical center, first at the University of Minnesota, and I was there for a little over eight years, and then working at NC State's Veterinary Hospital and in their College of Veterinary Medicine, and I, I was there for six years. And so I spent a lot of time working very specifically in a veterinary setting. And because of working in that setting, I was able to engage the community in lots of interesting ways, right? So not just working in medical case management and end-of-life care and biomedical ethics in a veterinary setting, but I was able to help with policy practice. I was able to work with the animal welfare community. I was able to do a lot of focal training and work with social services professionals, again, to try to broaden their perspective of practice. And so that has really helped me once I transitioned to private practice has really helped me to reframe the importance of human animal issues outside of veterinary medicine, which is what a lot of people think of when they think veterinary social work. In your private practice, what comes up for you? You know, what are the main issues where you use the human animal connection? Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. And so part of my practice is a clinical practice doing outpatient behavioral health. Um, And even though I am a specialist in veterinary, veterinary social work per se, my clinical practice is not solely focused on working with animal welfare and animal care professionals, although I do. And it's not solely focused on working with pet loss, although I, I do. It's really focused on how do we support people in their emotional and behavioral health and their overall well-being. And then for about two-thirds of my caseload, that is animal-related practice that has something to do with somebody's animal or their history with animals or their work with animals because we intersect with animals everywhere mm-hmm. in our environment. And so I can bring that experience and that perspective to that clinical work without it being specifically a pet loss case or the well-being of an animal care professional case, right? You know, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, Yeah. I'm finding that in my own private practice that Mm. I actually have my picture with my animals. Probably 90% of the people that come in know that I have animals and they've Mm. chosen me by going Mm -hmm. to my website and saying, you understand animals, so I know you're going to understand me. Exactly. Yes. And so this is opening a door for connection and opening a door for inquiry. So when I think about my own practice, I think that in many ways, the animal becomes the one of the first or the primary units of analysis. If I know that someone has animals or has a rich experience with animals or even a difficult experience with animals, I can walk down that path with them and learn a lot about the person and a lot about the systems of which they're part, a lot about how they make meaning in their lives. 
because this opens a whole nother door um, that a lot of clinicians don't ask about. When I met with Dr. Pam Linden, we talked a lot about the importance of including pets in our family, in our intake assessments mm-hmm. as part of the family unit, mm-hmm. and then um, also to be able to hone in on any potential abuse and neglect. People, I mean, it crosses the whole human-animal barrier there, too. Right, absolutely. And I think when we're asking those questions, being really alert to the diversity of human-animal relationships, and people might not be pet keepers, but they might work in the agricultural industry. They might work in really difficult places where their interactions with animals cause a great deal of distress. Mm-hmm. And they might not be able to get out of those situations. So, what again, what does that mean for people's health and well-being? Mm-hmm. So, I think we really need to start asking more detailed questions about these relationships. There's a lot of shame that I'm seeing from people when they come in the door. And they feel a little bit shameful when they're talking about, you know, I, I lost my pet. But you know what? That was my best friend. That was my only mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. I, I feel guiltier for, uh, or more guilty, whatever the word is, for the loss of my pet, more so Mm -hmm. than a family member sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for us to talk about animals, even though they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're ubiquitous. They're in our communities. I mean, we share our, our spaces with birds and deer and all sorts of creatures, right? Sometimes they're in our homes, Many people eat them. I mean, we consume them. We wear them. We interact with them in all of these different ways. And yet our treatment of them and our cognitive space and our social space um, has been very different. It doesn't reflect that kind of familiarity and sometimes intimacy, right? And so people, I think, are afraid to bring it up. They're afraid to say or to admit this has been really focal for me whether it's good or it's bad. And I think especially when things are not going well, when those relationships sour, when they cause some element of increased risk, I think people don't know what to do with that and they don't know who they can talk with about that. Very true. Yeah. And so when you give them permission to talk about that relationship and that bond, you can just see them go, that's such a relief because I thought there was Mm -hmm. something wrong with me. Absolutely. And so we just need to be able to provide space for those conversations to occur. Yeah. So, Janine, there's a difference between, and I don't even know the answer, so I look forward to hearing what your answer is, difference between animal-informed social work and veterinary social work. The reason that that term isn't well known is because I I sort of constructed it a number of years ago in my own practice. It sort of, it grew out of many years of not just working with clients and communities, but working with practitioners across many fields. And as I would talk to them about what I did for a living and my training, um, and I would use the term veterinary social work, you know, I think our concept of that is very specific because of the origin of that term and the way we've defined the practice. And I would have people say to me in training, especially other social services professionals would say, well, I'm never going to bring my animal or someone else's animal into practice with me. That doesn't make sense for where I work. I don't work with the link. I don't work with animal care professionals. And so then I'm really interested in the whole animal thing, but I don't know what this means for my practice as a military family life counselor. 
or my practice working as a professional case manager in healthcare. What is this? I don't know what to do with this. And so I really started to think, well, that's reflective of the fact that in social work in particular, it's really anthropocentric. And we are human focused and the place and consequence of animals is really marginalized. And so we think of animal veterinary social work as working in a veterinary clinic or doing, you know, link work, working specifically with pet loss. But people don't necessarily understand that if we are really more expansive about how we think about animals and the human or the shared biopsychosocial space, then we should be able to bring some awareness of animal relationships and interactions to all of these places. We should be able to bring that to all of these conversations. And I I became aware of that too in training graduate students when I was working in veterinary hospitals. So I'd bring in graduate student interns from not just social work, but also some of the other behavioral health um, social science fields. And we'd have conversations about, well, if I'm not going to work in a veterinary clinic or work specifically in animal care after graduation, then what do I do with this? Like, how do I interview for a job and tell them what I did for one of my internships? And I'd say, okay, we need to really think about this differently. We have to say, these are the transferable skills. This is what learning something about human-animal relationships means to your ability to practice anywhere. And so that was the idea of, can we make social workers animal-informed? No matter where they're practicing, no matter what population they're focusing on, no matter what issue of clinical or macro importance they tend to work with, that human-animal relationships interactions are really critical for your practice toolbox. And that's animal-informed. How can we create animal-informed practitioners? No, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Because I always wondered, with veterinary social work, it, it did seem, when it was originally introduced, as very compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. And so that adds like a broader focus, a broader mm-hmm. definition. Yeah. I mean, what I, my pie in the sky is that every social worker who is being trained into the field gets foundational knowledge about the importance of animals in the natural environment to the health and well-being of the collective which would be much more of a one health perspective. And that it might be that our professional role requires that we really focus our energy on the health and well-being of the individuals, families, community, the human community, but that we don't do that without paying very distinct attention to the role of animals and the natural environment and how humans also influence those components too. And if we could do that, not just as an elective class or a certificate so that only people who are really animal interested funnel into that, but people are more broadly trained as just part of what we do because we're systems professionals. That's that's my goal. No, that's a a wonderful goal. Like you said, it's, it's one health. Yes, for sure. Awesome. We've heard a lot about animal-assisted social work, animal-assisted interventions. Could you talk a little bit about what do you mean by animal-assisted social work? Mm -hmm. Animal-assisted interventions, 
animal assisted therapy, those tend to be under the same umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. Although intervention is a little bit more broad than what we normally consider animal assisted therapy. So animal assisted interventions in my mind includes animal assisted education, like reading programs. It includes any sort of social learning and interactions just as some sort of a support function, but not necessarily something that's, although lots of animal contact is therapeutic, but that's not what we mean by therapy, right? There's Mm -hmm. a difference. So I think about interventions as that sort of broad umbrella under which all of those intentionally bringing animals into some sort of a setting to have an impact. That is all what we mean under that umbrella. If we think about animal-assisted social work, that's a very specific definition that came out of University of Denver's graduate program. They have a certificate program in animal-assisted social work. And it's, it's got a lot of similarities to the idea of veterinary social work as far as really bringing animals into clinical social work interactions, learning about the impact of animals in, in the natural environment um, on human well-being. And also, sort of, we follow that circle around, really being aware of the link between environmental social work and animal-assisted social work, trying to bring those things together, right? And also the animal welfare piece, paying attention to animal welfare and the links. So I think those are definitions that have come out of academic training programs Mm -hmm. um, that are very useful in and of themselves. They are very meaningful definitions, um, and they've really paved the way. For social work to start educating mm-hmm. <laughs> our own practitioners about what these relationships mean, right? And again, when I think about animal informed, it's a bigger umbrella. Because you see a lot on the news, you see people doing things with animals all the time, and it's therapeutic in its own right. But when you're talking about animal assisted therapy, that's more concrete definition for yeah, that. Yeah, there is, right? So goal directed is the biggest part. It is goal-directed, skillful delivery. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It is really making sure that we are foregrounding the intentions, the objectives, the methods, and then the intended outcomes. What are we going to see and how are we going to measure that? Sounds like a treatment plan. It is. It should be. We shouldn't be delivering it without a treatment plan. Yeah. And so that's um, what we did in our in our program with you is developed a program, developed a treatment plan for how we're going to actually use our animals in our private practice or wherever we are mm-hmm. in a very specific way. A big piece of that, right, is animal selection. So not just defaulting to the animals who live with us, because mm-hmm. that might not be appropriate in any way, shape or form, depending on the animal, depending on the population, depending on the setting in which you practice, there could be any number of things going on there. So how do we select animals for the work? And, and that's the other piece of what I think animal informed social work could be is instead of defaulting to bringing an external animal into a clinical act, interaction, why are we not considering working with people's own animals. So if we have, you know, two thirds to three quarters of the population keeping animals in some form at any given time, and that's usually about the range, then we have animals who are already important in the system, who are already influential actors. When people have those kinds of enduring and important relationships or impactful relationships, we can utilize those clinically like any other relationship in the system. 
And I think encouraging people to think about that could potentially be not just really good for therapy and good for your clinical practice and outcomes, but also can we strengthen bonds that are already existent by working with them intentionally? So that's interesting that you mentioned that because doing telehealth, I'm doing it 100% now. Mm -hmm. And so I've met almost everybody's animal, Mm -hmm. you know, animals, plural. Mm -hmm. A lot of times will be cats crossing their laptop and or sitting on their shoulder or dogs pawing at them. And so I do a lot of uh, trauma work. Uh And one of the things with an EMDR specifically, and so with EMDR, we do a lot of resourcing and looking at their strengths and their support system. And pretty much 100%, if they have an animal, they say that their support system is their pet. We do resourcing around their pet to strengthen. Yes, that's perfect. That's such a good example, Allison, because I too, I work with a lot of trauma survivors and And EMDR is not one of my methods, but I also really try to find ways to integrate people's animals into the work that they do in between sessions, right? So how do you ground and how do you externalize? How do you distract yourself when you're feeling overwhelmed? How do you um, try to get back in your body, right? So all of these different ways we can actually employ animals Very specifically, we can include it in treatment planning. These are skills and resources that people already have. We just need to maximize them. So when I'm doing EMDR online and I'm having to help somebody ground themselves Mm -hmm. through technology, Mm -hmm. it becomes very challenging unless they have a pet. And so then we use their pet, throw the ball, pick up a ball and throw it to your dog or something with your cat. And it's very, very helpful. And another thing is to also, and I'm aware of it by seeing it, but the client is not always aware of it. So when they start feeling activated about something, I notice what their pet is doing. Mm-hmm. So then I'll focus on, I'll mm-hmm. just let the client know, do you see what your dog is doing right now? For sure. He noticed it before you actually noticed it. Yes. Just building that awareness, right? Awareness of self and space. Absolutely. And the being in tuned attuned Mm -hmm. with each other. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of evidence, actually, that we tend to co-regulate with others. And so it's not just teaching us to regulate in and of our own selves and our own bodies. It's teaching us to attune to safe others and regulate alongside them Mm -hmm. and help them to regulate as well. And so this is one of the areas where working with people's own animals could be hugely impactful. And I think Stephen Poor just did a lot of work with polyvagal yes. theory, and I use a lot of that in my practice. I love Me that. Me too. Me yes. too. Yeah. And co-regulation is exactly what, mm-hmm. what that's about. For sure. Knowing when you're in that safe, you know, that window of tolerance and when you start coming out and then noticing what your pet does. I lost uh, my golden retriever at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And after that, for probably a week or two, maybe even two, my Shelties just stared at me all the time. They kept staring at me and I didn't know what they were doing. Uh huh. And I'd be in bed watching TV and they'd be right over me. And finally it dawned on me, oh my gosh, they're worried about me. Uh, because they can see or sense that something's going on with me. And then it just dissipated because then I was working uh-huh. through it myself. But um, I didn't yeah. notice that until later that they actually were sensing something. Yes. And this is what comes out of relationship, right? This is 
a really critical point. So a wonderful, you know, difficult, but important personal example, Allison. So thank you for sharing that. I think here's where just drawing attention to why might they have noticed that and would an external animal have picked up on that as quickly or as completely. And so domesticated animals, part of that process is really trying to maximize their attention and attunement to the familiar, not to the outsider. It's who is the familiar human in my space and I will naturally prefer someone who's familiar and attuned to them differently than I will to an outsider. It's not that we're ignoring that um, animals attune to non-familiar strangers. They do because it's for their own well good, their own well-being, right? <laughs> their, own, their own health. And so they do have to attune to all of the humans. But I think when we pay attention to the differences and how an external or an adjunct therapy animal who's maybe interacted with you for 40 minutes or 45 minutes every other week to someone who lives with you. Like they're going to notice things. They're going to tune more quickly. They are going to respond in different ways than an external animal will. Let's utilize that when that is available to us, when it is safe for us to be able to integrate in therapy, let's find a way to do it. I do hear people and other therapists talk about, I I want to adopt an animal and I want to use this animal in my therapy practice. I know from training dogs in in therapy, you know, for therapy work, not in my private practice, but just as Mm -hmm. uh, animal assisted interventions, is that not all of my dogs have really fit in to that role. And it was very disappointing because I really wanted that dog to be a therapy dog, but Uh their personality just didn't fit. And so that was kind of heartbreaking for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. So then I added another dog to the family later on who ended up you know, fitting into that role. But I think that's something to be aware of. We can't force a dog or a cat or whatever, a horse. I know there are therapy horses too, to fit into that role if it's not within them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think if we shift of our perspective a little bit to consider that these are our colleagues, And the dual relationships are really challenging to manage ethically. And when we are working alongside our own beloveds, that is a dual relationship that might make it difficult for us to see what it is that they need, might make it difficult for us to fully understand the impact of the work on their health and well-being, their need for vacation time. (laughs) And the fact that they, and this is why I don't work with any of my own animals. And that's a very conscious decision, although part of that came out of having animals that I thought would be really good for the work, who for various reasons just never fully developed into the work. And part of it was the recognition that they work for me full time already. Their job is to support me. And when I come home after a really difficult day or a really difficult week, in practice, they are the ones who are then attending to me and putting me back together, whether they know it or not, mm-hmm. and giving me a routine that is soothing and grounding me. And so they're already doing really important and really difficult work. And I have to be sure if I'm also going to task them, in addition to what they're already doing, that that is going to be within their skill set and their natural aptitude that they're going to have the energy and the vibrancy to spread themselves a little bit more thinly. 
-hmm. And it might be more appropriate for me to bring in an animal who's going to very specifically be a coworker first, who is secured and trained specifically to work. And it doesn't mean they can't live with me. It doesn't mean that they won't have a place to stay. It means that our primary relationship is collegial. So what would that look like besides having that be the client's animal? Would you ask for somebody else who has a trained dog to come in Mm -hmm. or whatever animal? Well, um, so it might be that you bring in an adjunct with their handler. Although there are models of this in other countries, actually, where animals who are specifically procured and trained to work then can be checked out by behavioral health providers for use with animal-assisted interventions. So if you think about it, I mean, that might sound really harsh, but, but police dogs are trained in this way. And so their primary relationship with their handler is not of beloved, although certainly those relationships can develop that way, right? As a secondary relationship, you can become incredibly bonded emotionally and very invested in that relationship over time. But police dogs are not brought on to be beloveds and then taught to do the work. They are bred and trained specifically for the work, and they end up getting matched and then trained with their handlers. And oftentimes, not in all situations, but oftentimes they will live with their handlers. Mm -hmm. And their handlers then have an opportunity to adopt them upon retirement. So specific working dogs, like service dogs. working animals. Absolutely. (laughs) Working animals first. Yeah. And just as a way of untangling then some of the complications of dual relationships and recognizing that relationships can lead to alliances. And sometimes that's really difficult when you are really tasked with paying primary attention to your client. Well, there's no way that I could have had either one of my golden retrievers who are therapy dogs. I took them into the hospital and children's homes, and Mm -hmm. that was a weekend kind of thing outside Mm -hmm. of my work. There was no way that I could have them be part of my private practice because they'd be on people's lap and they're large and they shed. It would consume too much of my time to pay attention to my client and also my dog. And so much energy. Yeah. And I think it's different when you're part of a visiting program. Was that something that was a volunteer role for you? Okay, so that's different. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to pull that out is that when you're volunteering, you are not solely responsible for the clinical outcome in that situation. You are bringing an animal in to try to contribute to some kind of a process in a positive way, but it's not your responsibility to make sure that happens. You're just trying to maintain safety. And there's an interesting part of that, too, is that the organization that I was got my certification under would not their insurance wouldn't cover me if it was part of my work. Exactly. So we still have issues with professional liability that make this kind of crossover difficult, not impossible, just challenging. And we can do work as volunteers, again, with very different capacities, different expectations, and a difference in liability structure than if we are intentionally bringing our own pets into practice, into clinical practice. Right? So it's a very different way of understanding the work and also the, the professional and legal and, and you know, ethical responsibility of pulling together all of those pieces. Yeah, I know my own professional liability. Every time I sign up for it, they have like a box. Do you do animal assisted therapy? Mm -hmm. So So you have to usually get a rider policy. 
found out there's a writer policy for just about everything. Yes, there is, isn't there? (laughs) Janine, you also talk about bioethics and moral distress. What does Mm -hmm. that mean? This came out of working in veterinary hospitals for so many years. It's attention to ethical thinking and ethical decision-making in practice, specifically with bioethics, that is, you know, the field of thought that's related to how we apply ethical theory and ethical thinking to what happens in healthcare. And so if we really apply ethical thinking to what happens in veterinary healthcare, it's that prevalence of ethical dilemmas about the shoulds and the oughts. So how do I practice I'm in alignment with my sense of moral value and my sense of the ethics in my own profession. This is when and where the rubber hits the road. So it's when I feel constrained, when I do not have the resources, when I'm being asked to do something that's in direct opposition to what I think needs to occur, when I do not have the support or the capacity to actually provide something that's really necessary. So when we are faced with those kinds of ethical dilemmas in in any sort of health setting, that's when we have to really wrestle with the issues of bioethics, of of the ethics of life and the provision of care and end of life and death. So bringing that to veterinary medicine is trying to actively make space for those conversations to occur and to provide support and really a, a very specific framework to veterinary practice such that when those ethical dilemmas arise, and for most veterinarians in the United States, it's frequently, it's every week, they're confronting ethical dilemma after ethical dilemma, right? So how do we help people work through that? Because in veterinary medicine, very, very few practitioners have ever had formal training on ethical decision-making. For licensed social workers, This is required for most of us to maintain our licenses, Mm -hmm. right, is to have a certain number of hours every renewal cycle in ethics and ethical decision making. And this is not required for veterinary healthcare professionals. So they can confront these kinds of problems all of the time and not have any idea what to do with it. And that causes tremendous ethical distress and even moral injury which is when we really start to feel the wounds over time about feeling blocked from doing what is right and what we believe we've been trained for. So for an example, would it be something like um, somebody working in a veterinary hospital and they see an animal that's not well taken care of who continuously is brought in to be treated, but then they treat it and then they know that they're sending it back to a less than ideal environment. Would that be? Sure. So that's a good example. And actually, we have lots of correlates to that right in, in child welfare. Yeah, right. Yeah. And even um, I think social workers who work with children from at-risk environments are trying to do really important therapeutic work that is life enhancing. And then they're sending kids back into environments where they're under-resourced mm-hmm. and highly at risk for all sorts of things. And that's really hard for the professional. Because we know we're really limited in sort of what we can impact. And I think for veterinary professionals, that's a good example, too, is providing ongoing care to an animal who's going back to an environment where they're not going to have perhaps a lot of treatment adherence, where people are having a really hard time implementing the treatment plan or even providing basic well care. I think this happens a lot in veterinary medicine around over-treating and under-treating. 
So feeling pushed to provide care that you think is not only not going to be useful here, but might actually lend to some sort of suffering on the patient's part. That's a huge source of moral distress in veterinary medicine, Mm -hmm. being asked to proceed well beyond what you think is okay. Or under-treating, right? Knowing that you've got something that you can actually do something about, but the client doesn't have the five or 10 or $15,000 to be able to afford that care. And so then does that animal get less treatment than the animal needs? Does the animal have to be euthanized, Mm -hmm. even though the problem is fixable? And in talking to people in the veterinary community, one of the things with COVID that is the most distressing, well, there are a lot of distressing things, but mm-hmm. one of the things I hear over and over from clients and also veterinary professionals is the fact of not being able to be with their animal during euthanasia. That's not always allowed, or maybe there's one person in the family that can be there. And that causes so much lingering grief. It really um, has been in- incredibly difficult for families to navigate end of life at this time, regardless of whether the patient has two legs or four, right? Because uh, we're not able to be with our human loved ones as they're dying now either. Uh, So it's, it's so painful for people to not have those goodbyes in the way we constructed them in our heads. And I think this is also a place where there is a tremendous amount of moral distress on the veterinary team, because they know that this is a huge part of a quality, supportive experience at the end of life between patients and their people. Um, It's hugely important for veterinary professionals to be able to provide that moment-to-moment support at the end of life. And when people can't be present for it, that feels awful. Mm -hmm. It feels awful because veterinarians and technicians the assistants, they all know how critical a good end-of-life experience is for the survivor of it. Yeah. Well, a lot of the people that are coming in have lost loved ones in the family, friends, due to COVID anyway. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I've heard that the receptionists at veterinary hospitals are really having a lot of, it's a heavy load because they get a lot of the frustration and anger when people come call and say, what do you mean? And you help me. Yes, COVID has really changed the landscape of emotional labor (laughs) for a lot of folks, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, even doing telehealth and being online, you know, and and everybody having to work from home. I mean, the the list is endless. It is. Of how it's impacted every aspect of life. For sure. I tried to raise a puppy during COVID. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Warned every one of my clients. (laughs) When he was eight weeks old, I warned all of my clients and they're, they're used to it. So it only took about a month for him to stop crying all day. But anyway, it was a great benefit, but also something I haven't had to endure yeah. before. Yeah, it's uh, like having an infant in the house, right? It's having a new office manager. <laughs> it certainly is. So I wanted to ask you, Janine, um, you're the chief happiness officer for Vet Girl. What is that? What is Vet Girl? Mm-hmm. Vet Girl is a, a veterinary continuing education provider um, that works on multiple platforms. And so they've done a lot of just really wonderful work over the years of trying to make veterinary continuing education more accessible because, uh, as you know, veterinary professionals are one of the most time-starved groups of people (laughs) I've ever worked with. And so it really has been um, a leader at being able to make 
training, that continuing education component available to people on the go so that they don't have to physically sit in training all the time and take that time off of clinics to be able to maintain their skill set. And so I started with Vet Girl a few years back. And my job as the chief happiness officer is to be in charge of the content related to the health and well-being of veterinary professionals. Okay. So really developing training and ready-to-go information and resources so that veterinary professionals have up-to-date well-being information, mental health information at their fingertips. Do they get continuing ed? Mm-hmm. Credits? They do. Okay. They do. So it's webinars and Facebook lives and podcasts and all sorts of other things so that we can try to really maintain a high level of conversation about health and well-being in the veterinary profession, right? Because that's not always been at the top of the list. Um, The conversation has dramatically changed in the time I've been in veterinary medicine or veterinary affiliated, uh, thankfully, (laughs) and due to a lot of hard work by a lot of folks, including veterinary social workers who've really been at the forefront of these conversations, right? And so I think making this kind of information accessible to people so that alongside their continuing education modules with practice management and the latest in suturing and what do we want to know about fluid therapy, it is, and then reminder How about let's talk about moral distress? How about we talk about practice management for the well-being of professionals? How about we talk about emotional labor so that they can really keep that at the forefront of their own minds? Okay. So if anybody wants to, wants more information about Vet Girl, what is the best way to, is there a website? There is a website. Yeah. So anyone can go to the Vet Girl website and get a complete uh, archive of all of the work that's been done with Vet Girl, but then also to look up the schedule for all of the stuff that's coming up. You know, it's constant training. So it's vetgirlontherun.com is the actual website. I like that. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes. Absolutely. Janine, is there a contact or what, do you have a website if people want to get a hold of you? So um, there are a couple of different ways to get hold of me. So for people who are interested in connecting about the clinical side of my practice, my clinical practice is actually located um, in Virginia. And the group practice of which I'm part is wholejourneywellness.com. And so people can reach out to me there. And then for anyone who has a veterinary education or consulting or even a veterinary social work consulting question, just generally wanting to explore the practice or have a specific question that they need answered, they can reach me via my email, which is moga.janine at gmail.com. Terrific. And we'll add that to the show notes as well. Janine, is there anything else? This has been so enlightening for me. I've really enjoyed talking today. Is there anything else you'd like to share? You know, first of all, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I love talking with other social workers who are so interested in finding new ways to bring animals into practice. Ultimately, it's about improving outcomes, right? (laughs) So really thinking expansively about how we do this. And I, I think if I could just encourage people to really open their minds a little bit 
or a lot. For some, it's going to be opening a lot to the diversity of these relationships and interactions in all of the ways we intersect with animals, intersect with the natural environment. And then also, as you open your mind to that, looking for those opportunities to connect with people in allied fields. Because there are so many people, not just in veterinary medicine or animal welfare, but also in public health, in human health and nursing and environmental studies and science, who really need to hear the social work perspective and would welcome it. And so we need to put ourselves at the table. In order for us to do that, we really need to be thinking more expansively, right? Yeah, exactly. Janine, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you, Allison. And stay safe. My privilege. Yes, you too. Stay safe and well. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. If you have animals as part of your family, you already know the benefits that they bring to our lives. I'm wondering if you've also noticed how attuned your pets are to your own emotions. As we discussed during today's interview, our animals sometimes know what we're feeling before we can even put words to our thoughts. I know that's happened to me. I would love to hear from you if you have any stories to share where you've noticed that animals have taught you about your own feelings and emotions. We can learn so much through our interactions with nature and with all living beings. Just observe how the animals interact with each other and with us, and then see what we can learn from these interactions. Also, relationship with animals allows people with common values and goals to come together. It also gives us a commonality that may be absent in other areas of our lives. So for those of you who do have pets as part of your household, I challenge you to be observant of your interactions with them and how they respond to you, almost as if they are caregivers at times. Do they help you during emotionally challenging times? And if so, how does their presence calm you down? There's a lot of power in the human-animal connection. And we can continue to learn from the animals. Thanks. Stay safe. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.